talking about chicken a la king. Mango and garbanzo tabbouleh. Real potatoes and vegetables with roasted garlic and basil. Zucchini ziti. Granola fruit bar. Look at all this beautiful food. Welcome to Green Eggs and Dan, where I interview amazing people with amazing minds, but all I care about is what's in their fridge. Close listeners will know that it is not Dana Dutes' voice that you're hearing. It's me. I'm Matt Katz, a friend of Dana Dutes for almost 30 years. I'm a journalist at WNYC Public Radio and NPR, and it's my honor to be interviewing Dana Dutes today on the occasion of the release of his book, his memoir, his soon-to-be bestseller, Undercooked, How I Let Food Become My Life Navigator, and How Maybe That's a Dumb Way to Live. Dana Dutes, welcome to Green Eggs and Dan. Wow, what an honor. I'm a huge fan of the show. I've been listening forever. Uh, there's no better podcast. So to be a guest on this show. I'm so curious. It's such a good name for a podcast. Where did you come up with the name for Green Eggs and Dan? That's right. Matt Katz came up with the name for Green Eggs and Dan. I forgot that. Oh, you did? Well, no, I remember that, but I didn't even think that that would come up. But of course it should come up. You birthed the title of this show. I'm trying to think of what the alternative names were. It was like chewing the fat, but like those were taken. <laughs> but Green Eggs and Dan is the best. It, it works on so many levels. I love it. It's the best name of a podcast that I've ever named and the only one. And I'm pretty proud of myself. Should we like say a little bit about you for people who might not know that that's normally what you do when you have a guest? Yeah, sure. I wrote a little intro. You want to hear it? Yeah, let's hear it. You may know him from Crank Yankers and Cobra Kai. Green Eggs and Dan and Kicking It, Last Comic Standing, and the new movie Donor Party, the Food Network's Raid the Fridge, and Is It Cake? Plus, an underattended late-night show at a ground round in godforsaken part of central Pennsylvania in 2004 that I was lucky enough to be at. Ladies and gentlemen, Dan to Dude. I love that the first credit is actually a fake credit that I used to use, which is that I was a writer for Crank Yankers. <laughs> you did that all the time. I used to lie <laughs> to try to get booked at colleges and say that I was mm-hmm. a writer for Crank Yankers because that was super high profile back then. It was. <laughs> you had a passing interaction with them once, like you met like a producer once and then you just started putting it in your credits. I think what happened was they had like a real (laughs) cattle call audition to be a writer. And I wrote like five sample prank phone calls and I sent it in and didn't hear back. (laughs) But I just (laughs) said, I'm a writer on Crank Yankers now, I guess. Hey, fake it till you make it. You got to fake it till you make it. Yeah. And you've been great at that. You are excellent. You're obviously hilarious. And that's what's bred so much of your success. But you're so damn good at the hustle. And somehow, even though you've never written so much as an article after the southerner our high school newspaper you got a book deal with a real publisher and it's coming out now it's amazing tell me briefly i want to talk about your fridge obviously we're gonna get to the fridge that's what everybody's here for but tell me a little bit about this book how did this come about why did you want to do it? You wrote a you wrote a memoir. You wrote a food memoir. I feel like writers are going to hear this and hate hearing this, but I never actually intended to write a book. This was never in the cards for me. It's kind of like, I, did, I just watched the Oscars and like there was a guy who won for best editing for Everything Everywhere All at Once, and in his speech he was like, "This is crazy, guys. This is like only the first movie I've ever edited," and you could just <laughs> hear 
all the editors in the crowd just like bawling their fists. But I never intended on writing a book. I've been a writer. I've written for TV. I write scripts all the time, but I never intended to write a book. What happened was I hunt and I've always loved uh, this journalist. His name is Steve Ranella. He's like a hunter. He's a conservationist. He's a journalist. He's got a show on Netflix called Meat Eater, and he's got the number one hunting podcast in the country called Meat Eater, which I've always been a fan of. And I just love this guy because he's like a thoughtful hunter. He's like an Anthony Bourdain type hunter. And I reached out to him because I wanted to be on his podcast. And I wrote a nice letter of some stories of my hunting exploits and whatnot and made it funny. And I think he's used to having very like huntery people on his show, not like Jews from Long Island. Mm -hmm. So he was like, come on the show. If you can make it out to Bozeman, Montana, I'll have you on the show. So I booked a plane ticket. I flew to Bozeman and I did his show. And it was very funny and different from what what he usually had on the show. Stories about the first time I went hunting and how my hunting partner is my best friend, Mo, who's this, uh, you know, Iraqi Muslim guy and I'm an Iranian Jew and just these weird, funny stories. And my manager, Aaron Brown, listened to the podcast and was like, I, I heard your hunting podcast and you need to turn this into some sort of a film. So I was like, okay. I wrote an outline for a film. We both looked at it. We both didn't like it. And she was like, why don't you just write why you like food so much? Just write about it, free writing. And I was like, I like food because it's delicious. And she's like, no, 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 like get into it. Like, why are you so obsessed with food? So I wrote this whole thing about my relationship with my father and my older brother passing away and and how I was kind of looking for this relationship that I had lost with my brother and my father through food. And she liked it and was like, this could, this feels more like a chapter of a book. Do you have a couple more chapters in you? And I was like, yeah, sure. So I wrote a couple more sample chapters and sent them to her. And she sent them to the lit agent, which again, I never thought I would interact with her. Her name is Liz Parker. And she called me right away. And she was like, listen, I get samples from like comedy writers who are at this agency all the time. And I throw 98% of them out. This is really good. <laughs> I was like, what are you talking about? What's happening here? <laughs> and she's like, you're going to you're gonna write a book. And she pitches the book out. And next thing I know, there's like a bidding war and uh, end up signing a deal with Crown Publishing for way too much money. And I'm just like, what the fuck just happened? Because now it's like, now you got to write the book. I do remember you, Matt, specifically telling me that you think I got the deal because I was a, a, a brown person of color. And that's the only reason I got it. It's a, didn't say that didn't say that first of all you you have a like raw writing talent obviously you write jokes you write for tv and film but what you did here was take a, a series of your anecdotes your stories that you might tell in various ways on the, on the podcast or on stage and you put them down on paper you flesh them out and then you there, there's a connective tissue here there's a a, a story arc that kind of gives insight into yourself, into the world of food today, into modern relationships. It's it's great. I love it. Oh, thank you. And I mean, throughout the whole process, Matt was like my emotional support writer buddy because Matt is a real writer. So it was always uh, affirming to be able to share the chapters with you and hear that that they were they were good or whatever. Yes, you are a big part of being my cheerleader throughout this this weird process. That again, I never ever expected uh, to be a part of my career. Enough of the Mutual Appreciation Society. We're here to talk about your fridge. Yes, you guys can see my fridge on my Instagram, at Stand Up Dan. By the way, I really did what I say, which I did not stage this 
whatsoever. No, that's, that's very clear. <laughs> the first thing that jumped out at me is that there's like very few and very cheap beers, but they're like they're scattered around the fridge. Yeah. And I'm curious if you're like, I would like to buy a Modelo and nothing more or one fat tire. Or are you just like not drinking beer ever at home? And these are like leftovers from people coming over. It's so funny. I just I see the Michelob Ultra. (laughs) Yeah, that's the other (laughs) one I saw. (laughs) I don't really drink beer. In my in my later years, I've developed an allergy to hops. I'm telling you, I'm convinced that I've self-diagnosed myself with this because I used to love IPAs, which are full of hops. And every time I drank them, I started to like get hives and like feel really exhausted right away and get red. And then I could have like Coronas and things that didn't have a lot of hops and I'd feel okay. Still a little weird, but okay. So these are basically beers that I have for guests at this point. Uh And they're brought by other people. And the last little gathering I had was like a bunch of fishermen came over that I've befriended (laughs) and they, and they brought their own beers. They're like, do you have any beers? I was like, no, but I do have some white burgundies, which will go well. They're like, fuck you. (laughs) And so they brought Modelo's and Michelob Ultra and Corona's. So that, that is what you have. The the, the Corona's are like tossed into the fridge as if like you throw socks in a drawer there's some of them are standing upright some of them are rolling over they're clearly not prioritized and they'll seem like they'll be in there forever okay the second thing that jumped out at me Mm -hmm. was there's a hummus in here okay (laughs) from 365 the whole foods brand you your, your most famous tv character is falafel phil you're you're a foodie from the sort of the part of the world near where there's a ton of like real hummus. Yeah. And you're buying the two ninety nine hummus? Am I okay, saying look. do you like my accent, by the way? Is that a good hummus? The hummus, very good hummus. Here's Thank the you. deal. Here's the deal. Yes. I would love to be able to go to the little fucking uh, homos shack that is, you know, uh, miles and miles away from me and go there and get the little artisanal hummus. I would love to do all those things. But the truth is, <laughs> I don't got time for that shit. And I don't even go to the supermarket anymore. My leftover of the pandemic is I'm never going to the supermarket again. I'm just uh-huh. ordering it online. So I get my whole food stuff from Amazon. Uh-huh. And uh, I think that Whole Foods makes the best uh, supermarket hummus out of any hummus. I think their, I think their brand hummus is even better than a lot of these cool hip brands that are not supermarket brands. Really? Yeah, I really, really love their hummus. I think Trader Joe's, on the flip side, makes the worst supermarket hummus. Uh, their organic one is slightly better, but it's still pretty shitty. But okay. uh, yeah, that's what that is there. There's a plethora of condiments. It's really incredible. You you clearly cook a lot. What the fuck is a jug sauce? And should I be eating it? Shkug. I think it's pronounced shkug. It's kind of like a Yemenite Israeli sauce that Trader Joe's makes. It's almost like a really spicy whip chimichurri. It's like a green sauce. A lot of like, you know, cilantro and parsley and all that stuff in the it, let's call it the pesto chimichurri family it's very spicy olive oil based green sauce it's spelled z z h o u g trader joe's 
makes a great one. Uh, Trader Joe's is fantastic at appropriating. I always say that they are like the best <laughs> appropriators. <Yeah. laughs> I'm surprised. I don't think they have like a. You know how they make the little racist names like Trader Jose's and Trader Giotto for right, their right, Italian yeah. stuff. Yeah. They don't have one for their Middle Eastern food, like uh, you know Trader Jalil or something. They need like a Trader <laughs> Jabroni because they have a bunch of like Israeli slash Middle Easterny things that are fantastic. Their Amba is great. Their Shkug is great. Uh, their feta, they have an Israeli feta that's very good. I have that down here. Oh, is that um, from Trader Joe's? I saw that. I was curious about that's that. That's also Trader Joe's, yeah. Um, what are you eating the jug with? I don't, uh, I mean, I, you can use it as a condiment on literally everything. It could be a, in a sandwich spread. It could be uh, with fish. It could be with meat. It could be, mm-hmm. you know, on top of a shawarma, like as a hot sauce. Well, what are you having it with? I usually use it in lieu of hot sauce. Like anything that oh, I would okay. put hot sauce on, I'd put that on. It's like a bright green vegetal hot sauce there's there there are oh i see i see you do have a good deal of whole foods condiments there's a poison sauce i love poison sauce from 365 on the door here yeah and uh as an ashkenazi jew i love the gold's horseradish you have here i feel like that gold's host for horseradish is years and years old it's passover 20 2014 yeah i don't know if it goes bad horseradish i probably but i don't know i use it for like i think i was having a shrimp cocktail once and wanted to okay and the poison poison is so great if if i get a bud that's not very good like delivery Mm -hmm. and it just doesn't have a lot of flavor i just dump tons of poison in there and it changes everything what you you would know what's going on with poison why is it so good is it an umami thing poison sauce is delicious it's basically I think I might be talking out of my ass, but it's like a sweet, I'm going to say plum based Mm. sauce that probably has a bunch of soy sauce in it and some sort of a plum, uh, you know, preserve situation going on. So I don't know. It's got a very, very good sweet, sweet and also like vinegary from the soy sauce thing going on. So, yeah, it's almost like a Chinese teriyaki, which... I just love it. I think it goes well on everything. And it's also like underused. I think most people don't have hoisin sauce at home. And it's a fantastic condiment. One other condiment question. Yeah. Lady, this is a, a uh, I mean, it's a handwritten label. It's yeah. a black bottle that looks like a old timey, you know, medicine that somebody would have this like large black right. bottle. It says Lady Jamie's Alchemy Worcestershire. I think it's Lady Jane's. I'm not okay. sure. Is it from a store or do you buy it out of like a, somebody's speakeasy for yeah. fancy condiments? That's what it looks like. It definitely <laughs> it it looks like this had the poison that Romeo and Juliet took. <laughs> it does. So I got this because on Green Eggs and Dan, I was interviewing Ruth Reichel, who is like my favorite food writer ever. And she had this in her fridge. And I was like, what the hell is that? And she had all these fucking random ingredients in her fridge that were crazy. Like her capers were from a caper farmer in Croatia <laughs> who has devoted himself to making the best capers. You know, like through he's he's survived five civil wars and he won't leave because of his caper bushes <laughs> like that type of stuff so she had this and she was like yes there's this woman and she makes this in her basement and it's the best worcestershire sauce you've ever had in your life now i'm not even like a huge worcestershire sauce person i can hardly pronounce it even it's a crazy word to pronounce but the way she was talking about it, i was like i guess i need the best worcestershire sauce like i've never had a one and be like this needs work <laughs> but she was like this is going to be amazing. So I fucking look up this Worcestershire sauce. And dude, it's like a small bottle. 
This uh-huh. thing cost, it was like 70 bucks or something. Shut up. She's like, it takes me years to make one bottle. I'm like, <laughs> okay. And I fucking got it. And it tastes like A1 steak sauce. Right, and I'm like, right. all right, cool. I guess I have this expensive A1 in my fridge. What about for uh, Bloody Mary? Maybe that's where it brings your Bloody Mary to the next level. I mean, look, I'm not going to lie. It's definitely delicious. Worcestershire sauce is an interesting sauce, actually, because it's anchovy based, which a lot of people don't know. Did not know that. It's almost like the American version of Thai fish sauce, which is also made of anchovies. So it's, I feel like every culture knows that anchovies add the most umami per Uh liter of any other animal so they figure out a way to make it i mean like the italians had something the romans had something back in the day called like gorum or some shit i I always forget the name but every culture sort of has their special secret anchovy based sauce and that worcestershire sauce is like the american version of that i mean i'm sure it's probably british or something but oh maybe that'll be our fun fact the the freezer which isn't always a part of Green Eggs and Dan. People don't normally necessarily show their freezers, I don't think, but you shared with us your freezer. Yeah. I can't tell. Honestly, I have no idea what's in there. It's, it's, I don't, I mean, it looks like maybe frozen kale bag and some frozen soup. I'll tell you, there's a couple of things that are interesting in this freezer. Uh, number yeah. one, there is an ice pack for my ailments. When I need an ice pack. (laughs) This is cool. In the back corner here is Elk Genovese, which Genovese sauce is a very interesting, uh, like Italian sauce, which is basically you take whatever meat you have, usually like stew meat. And instead of stewing it in water or broth or, you know, whatever you stew meat in, they just stew it in piles and piles and piles of chopped onions. So imagine literally filling your Le Creuset to the top with chopped onions and then putting in whatever uh, stew meats there are. That's it. And the onion melts down and the onion liquid becomes your braising liquid for the meat. And I put in uh, elk shanks from an elk that I killed uh, and made this beautiful, beautiful, really rich pasta sauce with it. That's the pasta sauce is in the back of that freezer there? Yeah, that's pasta sauce there. This is a chicken soup I made because I was sick last week, so I made myself a chicken soup. These are super expensive frozen wild blueberries that I use in my smoothies. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, this is another Trader Joe's appropriated thing. They make yeah. kibbe, you know, kibbe? Yeah, sure. It's like almost like an Arabic minced beef patty. They make a great one, Trader uh, Jalil. <laughs> <laughs> the elk, first of all, it's labeled. Yes. It's like a printed typed label. Do you have a labeling machine? For- <laughs> I, got a, I got a label machine. It's a game changer, a label machine, not that expensive. And it will just like, like, look on the chicken soup that has a label. It just like elevates your fridge, man. I know that that's coming from the guy who's got like wayward Coronas. (laughs) I'm like talking about elevating your fridge. Exactly. But I just love a label maker so much. It's a small barrier for entry for a lot of luxury. It's like a real luxurious thing you can get for like 15 bucks. So you were sick last week. And you like dragged yourself out of bed Mm -hmm. and you made chicken soup from scratch. Yeah. And you then went over to your label maker. Yeah. Sick as a dog, booting all over your rug. But you had to make sure that chicken soup was put on the Tupperware. Yeah. Because you might have gone into the freezer and not known what that was and maybe mistaken it for, I don't even, I mean, it's clearly chicken soup. Do you, it's fascinating to me that you label the food that you make that you 
a hundred percent know what it was. <laughs> right. It's not like you, it's not like it's uh, some sort of, you know, you don't live in a commune. You're making it seem a lot more sad than I ever <laughs> thought strange. it was. It's just a little is, bit strange. This feels <laughs> a lot more sad than I thought it was. I mean, I think it's very cool and unusual <laughs> and I'm into it. I've just had just, uh, just a questions. Well, it's a great fridge. Thank you. You're an amazing cook. Also, you know so much shit, like your memory. I'm always impressed by your like food memory and you have all these factoids about food. It's clearly like in you. You know, your stand-up though is not necessarily like a lot of food jokes. You you mention a restaurant situation or whatnot, but it seems to me like the the book enabled you to take this crazy obsession you have where you know all this random shit and then marry that with you know your life experiences and then your ability to make people laugh right i mean the book is sort of a it's like a food comedy memoir is that a fair way to describe it yes it's interesting because i have so many outlets for like any thought right now that comes into my head right so if it's something that automatically is going to be really funny that's for stand-up if it's something that's like character, like different characters interacting or a very interesting story, that could be a TV show, right? Mm-hmm. And now I have this thing, which is if I have like a very thoughtful, thoughtful, potentially deep cut food related something or other, I can write about it in a sort of long formy way, which is really cool because yeah, I, none of this seemed very appropriate for stand up. Like no one, what, where am I, how am I going to talk about being an intern at the Spotted Pig or going to the number one restaurant in the world in my stand up? Like it's, you know, for lack of a better word, very pretentious, a lot of it, even though I try to kind of color it in a, in an accessible way in the book, which I, th- I think I'm pretty successful at doing, but like, I'm also kind of unabashedly pretentious in a way because yeah, you are. look, to be a comedian and to be successful at it and to make money at it is probably the heart. It's like your chances of that happening is 0.0001%, right? So it happened for me. I worked my ass off. I'm lucky enough that it worked out. And so I don't feel like I need to be apologetic about like, yeah, I worked my ass off to be a stand-up comedian to make money to get these experiences. So I'm going to have these experiences and I'm, I'm very grateful that I get to have them. But like, I have a lot of buddies who like, will try to hide their like fancy shit. I'm like, dude, you're a comedian. If you were like a trust fund baby, I get it. <laughs> but like we hit the lottery. So be a little, that's why I think I'm a little more shameless about it than, and a lot of people will be like, oh, you're, you're like a pretentious prick. I'm like, fuck you. I worked my ass off doing comedy shows at the ground round in philadelphia like you actually couldn't get into the ground round of philadelphia it was in like bumblefuck central pennsylvania yeah do you remember um, we drove for like two hours to get to the show yeah i mean this was in 2004 i was taking trains to like the amtrak to the local train to <laughs> matt's car to get to this <laughs> dumb fucking competition you know to try to win some bucks yeah so i you know i put in my time i put in my dues you i did. worked my ass off i deserve i deserve this foie gras Okay, I earned this foie gras. <laughs> I think I first saw you do stand up in the in the late nineties, and you were as funny then. It just the the nature of the game requires just a massive amount of hustle, and you hustle. You, you, I mean, you hustled like crazy. You deserve all the shit you have. You deserve the the nice car in your in your uh, parking garage. I mean, the only other thing I would I would say when you said that the these sorts of stories don't really go and 
uh, in your standup routine, they're also like emotional. I mean, there's some heavy shit in this book. This is not just like a series of, you know, funny anecdotes. The, the book opens with the death of your brother at a young age. Uh, you talk about your, your parents extensively. You opened yourself up a good deal here. Do you feel anxious at all um, about the vulnerability on display? Or, or does it feel good? Is it kind of a therapeutic to put these words into paper and share the share them with the public? I I think both. Okay. So I think number one, it feels very scary in that I think that every comedian has a lot of dark shit in their lives, but our job is to turn the dark shit into funny stuff on stage and deal with the dark stuff ourselves, you know, uh, whichever way that we decide to deal with it. So this was the first time that I'm like taking the dark stuff and that's kind of leading. So I feel like That is very strange for me to do in general because that's not the business I'm in. So it's strange to do that. The other strange thing is that I'm used to with comedy getting very instant gratification. I know right away if a joke works or if it doesn't work. This is like I've been working on this thing for like a year and now it's going to go out. I have no idea what people are going to think. I've gotten very little feedback the whole way through, except for like a handful of, you know, friends and families and publishers and editors and stuff. So I don't know, man, it's very, very strange, but also it's very cathartic. You know, it's, it's weird. I did not expect to cry so much writing this book. Mm. I felt like I got to a point where I could tell if something I was writing was good. If I, if it hit me in a certain way, like if I started Mm. to cry or well up, I would know, okay, I think this is going somewhere good. And I'd say every chapter that I wrote had something in it that like that that brought a little well up. Again, if you're listening to this, it's a funny book. It's there's definitely comedy in it. No doubt about it. But you go through, you know, the trials and tribulations of your life, like anybody else's life. And then you talk about how like food got you through or certain things that happened changed your relationship with food. It really begins with your parents, your immigrant parents. And they're interesting because when I first met them in high school, I like immediately took them as like old world immigrants, like my great grandparents coming from, you know, escaping Europe a hundred years earlier. But in fact, they're like extremely cosmopolitan people. They speak all kinds of languages. They've traveled and lived all over the world and they have these fancy food tastes. And that's really what began your your love of food, right? I mean, your, your dad exposing you to this stuff. Yeah. And it's funny because I do think that a lot of Iranian immigrants that are their generation are that they're kind of, you know, a little more simple, (laughs) let's call it. But, you know, my dad speaks six languages. He went to school in Switzerland and lived there for a bunch of his life. And he, uh, you know, he sells rugs. Don't get me wrong. You can take the guy out of the bazaar. You can't take the bazaar out of the guy. (laughs) But, uh, you know, he was very much like he... And my mom traveled a ton. They took all the money, any money that they made, they put it into travel. And uh, this is before Instagram, before you could show off to uh, your your friend group where you went. What was even the point of traveling if you couldn't even get a click on it? It makes no sense to me. Travel and food became a huge, huge part of their lives. And my dad was working in Europe a lot. So he'd bring back all these things from Europe that we couldn't get in America, like cool chocolate milks and like organic stuff before organic was even a thing. And look, in the nine in the 80s and 90s growing up in America, America as a whole was pretty much a food wasteland. It's not what it is now. Like now it's like the most vibrant food place in the world, but it was shitty back then. And I'm not even like everywhere, New York City, LA, every single place 
It was yeah. very one note. There was no good food. There was a couple of super upscaly places. And even those to today's standards would be lame. And it was just like food was an app was not a thing in in American cuisine until Americans started to get obsessed with it and and do what we do, which is we, you know, I've said this in the podcast before, but like, I, I feel like American ingenuity, like when Americans put their minds to something like we will make it to the moon, we will, right. we will build the first car. And I think in the late 90s, Food Network probably had something to do with it, where it revolutionized the way Americans looked at food. And now it's like, we are the place, you know, arguably it has some of the most interesting avant-garde, cool, high-end food, Mm low-end food, best barbecues, you know, in the world, best beer in the world. Uh, We're starting to make the best wines in the world. I mean, like we as a society have become very food obsessed, but we weren't back then. But anyway, back to your question. Yeah. So I have two brothers, younger brother, older brother. And I was the middle child. The middle child does what they can to get attention. Uh, you know my younger brother. He's taller, more handsome than I am. Like much more handsome. Much more. Way more handsome. My older brother, uh, also way more handsome and also like a semi-pro athlete. And, you know, they were very good at getting attention. I wasn't. But one of the ways that I got attention was with my father through food and showing him my obsession with food and showing him how much I loved food because he got off on it so much. He loved when I would like show appreciation in, in food or the fact that I would eat ice cream and never get any of it out of my mouth. And, or like when I, when they took me to Gino's pizza for my, I think it was like my ninth birthday. And I was like, how dare you take me to a pizzeria on my birthday? Shout out to uh, Gino's and Green Egg where we all used to go. Love Gino's. But then my brother died and my dad became super kosher and we kind of lost that. I mean, I lost my parents for a couple of years anyway, just because they had to do what they had to do. You know, like they were, they were shells of themselves, understandably so. So I lost that food relationship. I lost my brother and I needed to find something to fill that hole. You know, I was on my own. And and food was the thing that brought me comfort and the thing that brought me relationships. So I just went down that rabbit hole as hard as I could. And, you know, uh, it kind of made me into the person that I am today. I mean, and there was a lot of dumb, dumb things that I did on that journey. But one man's dumb journey, another person's entertaining stories. So right. uh, hopefully the stories are entertaining. But uh, it took me to a lot of weird places that I have no, I had no business being in. Like uh, whether it's like hunting uh, in general, yeah. hunting in, in Long Island, um, going elk hunting, uh being in relationships I shouldn't have been in, getting out of relationships that I shouldn't have gone in. <laughs> you know, it's led my life in a way, for better or for worse, right? So, I mean, that's how it all kind of began. And and you, your relationships, food is so tied into your romantic relationships. You wrote about a lot of that in there. I'm like, holy shit, that story is crazy and true because I remember you talking about it when it happened. Was it helpful for you sort of emotionally and psychologically to kind of go through those relationships, uh, think about how they relate related to your food obsession and put it all down on paper to sort of process it? That helped in some way. Was that cathartic in some way? Yes, it was cathartic. And there's two, I mean, there's three like relationship stories in the book relating to food. But the first one is what the book is named after, Undercooked, which is about how me and my ex-fiance ended up somehow, some way getting a table at the number one restaurant in the world, Osteria Franciscana, the day that it became the number one restaurant in the world. And how, you know, during this crazy, lavish tasting menu, uh, one of the courses was a risotto that was undercooked. And we went through this lengthy debate of, do we return a dish at the number one restaurant in the world the day that it's the number one restaurant? 
or did we just hold it in and we decided to return the dish and it just created this insane cascade of events uh, and it's a really fun story, but it's also kind of a story of my relationship falling apart. And that was basically the first thing that I wrote that I was like, oh, this is kind of cool to be able to use food as the jump off point, but then actually talk about something serious. And it was very cathartic. The other one, which is a lot harder to write, which is about a relationship that I ended prematurely because of food allergies that uh, my my ex had was it was funny. I was putting that off as for as long as I could. Uh, I didn't want to touch it. And then I remember it was like two months before my, it was like a month and a half before my manuscript was due. And again, I've never written anything. So like I, in my head was like, I think, I think the book is almost done. I think I'm almost good here. I wasn't doing word counts. And I was like, how do I know if the book is done? Like, it feels like it's done. And I call my agent. I'm like, hey, how do I know when the book is done? Like, how long is this supposed to be? I think it's almost done. Like, maybe one more chapter. And she's like, let me look at your contract. It's in your contract. I was like, oh, it is? She's like, yeah, you're contracted to 60,000 words. And I was like, okay, 60,000 words. Let me look this up. So I start adding up all the word counts in a little Excel spreadsheet. And I was at 32,000 words. Oh, my God. And I had a month and a half. And I had been I had been writing for like seven months. Right, right, right. <laughs> and I lost my shit. And I canceled Thanksgiving. And my parent, my mom was in L.A. I was like, you got to get out of here. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> and then this was funny. Like, I Googled, like, authors that wrote books in record time, like, to give me inspiration. And, like, apparently F. Scott Fitzgerald wrote The Great Gatsby in, like, an afternoon. Sure, and, like, sure. Stephen King was like a huge fan of write 2000 words a day. And like apparently Ian Fleming wrote James Bond in like a week, like the first James Bond book. I mean, Googling how uh, famous authors who write quickly <laughs> while experiencing writer's block and under an insane <laughs> deadline is the most writerly possible thing you could have done. So that makes, that makes a lot of sense. Anyway, so I was like, all right, if this is possible, I can do this. Let's go. And it made it a lot easier to write that chapter that I was like pushing back because I was like, I have to power through it. So I was just like fucking bawling and writing and writing as fast as I could and crying and go, 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 just wiping my face and just keep going, keep going. And it actually made it a lot easier to do to just kind of power through it. But yeah, I, I would say it was definitely, it was very cathartic, but it was, uh, it was crazy. I mean... The craziest part was reading the book, the audio book, where like, you know, for two days you're in an audio booth and you're reading this and it's <laughs> by yourself, super by yourself in a soundproof room. Yeah. And like the, the, the main, like the publishing guy isn't even there. He's on zoom and you're just in this soundproof booth. And next to you is like this, like, just like weirdo sound engineer, like, <laughs> like emo, like dude, who's like just sitting there. <laughs> like engineering and I'm like, and it's very emotional because you get into it and you're reading it and you're getting into it. And I, I would, yeah. I would start crying and then he'd be like, hold, hold on. Oh, yeah. You cried. Uh, just take it back. And I was like, okay, sorry. <laughs> was like, like I should have had a therapist on the other end. And instead it's like, <laughs> right. It was like some like weirdo, weirdo, just like emotionally dead sound engineer. Did he like the lighter parts? Did he laugh at all? Any no, I got nothing. nothing. I got nothing from this guy, which as a comedian, it's like impossible. <laughs> you're 
your audience is giving you absolutely nothing. <laughs> it was uh, the audio book is, is I think going to be really fun. You know, we shouldn't give the wrong idea. There's so many, just so much funny shit in here too. Uh, you know, you, you are this Jewish Persian kid from Long Island with very, very soft hands and a ton of like, you know, moisturizing products in your bathroom. And yet you're like a hunter. You're like a serious hunter. I track yeah. you on find my friends and I know when you're out in some random wilderness killing things. Yeah. You, you wrote extensively about the hunting, and, and, but, but you came to a different place. I don't want to give it away, but like you're, there's a journey there with the hunting experience. Where are you now? Are you like into hunting certain animals, but not others? What are you getting out of it now? Other than the, uh, the elk you have currently in your, in your freezer. I do love hunting. I still love hunting. There are definitely aspects of it that are annoying. Like hunting culture is like, is sometimes can be a little too get or done for me, but I do love hunting. I think hunting is giving me weird adventures and introduced me to interesting, weird people that I would never hang out with, has given yes. me a much better understanding of people on other sides of ideological spectrums as I am. I was saying the other day on an interview, like I have friends who are like off the fucking deep end, man, like just yeah. like January Sixers who are like hunting friends of mine who like have fed me and ha have housed me and have such good camaraderie with them. And it's like in a time where it's so easy to hate people that you s just see on Twitter and you want to pile on, I feel like breaking bread with people, uh, whether it's actually actually eating of the food or the catching of the food, it's it's impossible to hate someone uh, if you do that with them. So yeah, I, I love the adventures that hunting has given me. Uh, I'm very much a, a big proponent of it. And I think that's one of the reasons I wrote so much about it is because I know a lot of people reading my book are not hunter types and have preconceived ideas about hunters. And there's a lot of interesting thing about uh, things about hunting that I think would blow them away. For example, the fact that hunters give more money when we buy our hunting life. We don't need to do a whole Second Amendment propaganda thing at the moment. <laughs> ah, take it out of my cold, dead hand. <laughs> no, the funny thing is I own guns and I've gotten into so many Second Amendment fights with my hunter friends. And it's like, it's harder for them to use their dumb talking points with me because they know that I'm a gun owner. They know that right, I'm someone right. who enjoys going hunting. So I don't know. I feel like I straddle an interesting place where I can speak to both sides out of this. But I will say to my extremely liberal listeners, like one thing that was is really interesting to me is that when you go hunting, you're, all the money that you put into your hunting license and a big portion of the proceeds <clears throat> of your ammo, like there's a tax on your ammo that you buy, all goes, all of it goes to, it's like one of the few bureaucratic things that actually works 100% perfectly. Like they can never skim the fat off to put it towards something else. All of it goes to nature conservation, to conservation of land, in America. And because of that, populations of buffalo are at rates that they've never been. The game population is just amazing in America. It wasn't always like that. And also hunters give more money to nature conservation than every environmental group in America combined. So because of guns, hippies can go hiking is what you're saying. Because of guns, hippies can go hiking. <laughs> my, my psychoanalysis of you is very much in line with what you just said, that I think you love people and experiences, and that's what food, and in this case, hunting, 
has given you these, these food and experiences. I mean, you know, the, one of my favorite stories in the book is about how you go hunting every year with your friend Muhammad and these really nice men who may or may not be white supremacists when they're not hunting with Dana Dude and Muhammad. I mean, so, and I think you, you love being in that kind of environment where everybody's might be different from you or you've never experienced a thing. And that's what you, I mean, that that's where your passion lies. And then food has just been a, a conduit uh, for that. I, I agree with that. I, I do think there's something about having street cred, about having the street cred to be able to argue with people from both sides. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's like, I feel like it's impossible for someone who's anti-hunting to look at someone like me and be like, oh, all hunters are just uneducated, inbred hicks. And yeah. then I think it's also impossible for hunters to look at someone like me and be like oh uh you know all jews or all you know all coastal elites are are just like out of touch pussies and also like when it comes to food having worked in some of the best kitchens in in america and you know being a part of that world it's like it gives me a street cred that i can talk about it in a way that I don't know. I don't know what it is, what that is like, where it's like, I don't feel like I'm good. Maybe it's like, I don't feel like I'm good enough as my, as, as myself. So I feel like I have to, I have to just like rack up all these like resume builders to be able to, to feel worthy of offering my opinion. I don't know. Well, I think you, you like to, you know, live in the contradictions where you, you have the street cred among people who think that you're not like them. Like you're a, Jew whose family's from the overwhelmingly Muslim part of the world. You're one of your first jokes. The, the earliest joke I remember you ever making on a stage was, as uh, you know it very well, you used to use it, <laughs> used to use it all the time and it killed, was um, Iranian and I'm Jewish. My friends say when I get drunk, I throw rocks at myself. People love that. I had like five versions of it. It became, <laughs> I'm, I'm Iranian and Jewish. I know what you're thinking. I don't know if I should hate him or hate him. That's right. That's right. And then, it was, and then the third one was I'm Iranian Jewish, Iranian Jew. It's really one of those classic combinations like peanut butter and cat. <laughs> <laughs> I really milked it. Really I, milked I mean, it was a good time to milk it. The, you know, early 2000s. Yeah. That was a, that was a good time to talk about Middle Eastern type things. <laughs> We've had some amazing food adventures. We spent a week together having food adventures in Japan. And what's fascinating about that is Undercooked, which goes on sale this month, has more than 200 pages. And there's not a single mention mm. of our food adventures in Japan. Mm, mm. I'm wondering why. Can we talk about yeah. that, please? We went sake, sake tasting. Remember that? We went to all those fifth floor fancy sushi restaurants. You had the ramen, that fucking ramen website. We went to every <laughs> hole in the wall ramen joint to try the tankutsu and all. You know, we did all that shit. We went yeah. to a fish market and we had three different grades of tuna. It was insane. Well, you tell me. You read the book. Every chapter, every food adventure has some sort of like thing behind it. The thing is, right. Matt, my relationship with you mm-hmm. is just pure bliss and fun. That's and there's sweet. no <laughs> hidden agenda behind it. It's just right. you're my buddy that I go to have fun with. And that was a very fun trip. We went to Japan. Matt was doing a story and we stayed at the most magical little hotel that was just a hotel for journalists. And, and like academics. It was like for people doing any sort of research. It was very yeah. magical. It was this beautiful kind of mid-century modern uh-huh. set in a Japanese forest yeah. uh, place that was 
so just calming and beautiful. You would write all day and then I'd go out and have ramen during the day and then we'd have yeah. a food adventure at night. And then we would go back. We shared a room. It looked like where Bert and Ernie slept. We had like single beds, like three feet from each other. Not not normally what 40-something-year-old men who have jobs would necessarily be No, sleeping. But it was still lovely. It was still very lovely. It was a glorious trip. And I think I like about that is that most people go to Tokyo for like three days and then go somewhere else. We were there for yeah. a solid amount of time. And yeah, you're a very, very fun uh, food travel partner, even though you have every food allergy uh, under the sun but the reason i like you and your food allergies is you power through them you're like i know i'm i know i'm gonna have an awful couple of days but i don't care i'm just gonna keep going and then you get into a perpetual cycle of just feeling <laughs> awful my new thing with that that i'm struggling with is uh don don like kills me uh on oh, the like don -Don Dan -Dan noodles. noodles i love that <laughs> hot chili sauce whatever it is on there and i will order it and i'll eat all of it and then for two days afterwards there's like screaming from the bathroom okay. that my family will hear okay. do you want to know more this, about that this is a food podcast okay <laughs> we don't need to hear about this Worcestershire sauce has its roots in India, but was actually created by accident in its namesake town of Worcester, England in 1835. The Liam Parents Company says Lord Sandby's had returned home to England to retire after successfully governing Bengal, India for many years. He so missed his favorite Indian sauce that he commissioned drugstore owners John Leah and William Perrins to come up with a reasonable version. Now, apparently 95% of that story is complete bullshit, but it's kind of fun, so let's go with it. The original intent of the chemist was to keep some of the batch to sell in store, but the anchovy and vegetable mixture had such a strong odor that they decided otherwise and stored it in the cellar. It lay forgotten for two years until it was rediscovered during a cleanup. The batch had aged into a wonderfully flavored sauce, which was bottled and quickly became a hot item with customers. In fact, the current versions of Liam Perrin still takes 18 months to mature. Fun fact, the Liam Perrins you get in the U.S. is made with distilled white vinegar, while the one from the U.K. is made with malt vinegar. Guys, supermarkets can be intimidating, even for me, even for a professional, food-obsessed, debonair chef like myself. They can be intimidating. And sometimes I just want someone to give me the ingredients and tell me what to do with them. And that is where HelloFresh comes in. Love HelloFresh. You get farm-fresh, pre-portioned ingredients and seasonal recipes delivered right to your doorstep. Skip trips to the grocery store where you got to interact with, with uh, oh, I'm so, can I move my cart in front of you? Next thing you know, you're fighting, you're getting shivved. You don't need that. It doesn't happen with HelloFresh, okay? It makes cooking easy, fun, affordable. That's why it is America's number one meal kit. Make mealtime easy with delicious recipes made with fresh, wholesome ingredients delivered to your door. No lines, no hassle, just great tasting meals you can whip up and enjoy in the comfort of your home. HelloFresh has 40 weekly recipes to choose from for all your meal occasions. Just click it. They'll send you the ingredients. Take your pick from meals like soy glazed salmon with rice or mushroom and chive risotto. Okay, you can get it all with HelloFresh. 
I love HelloFresh. Again, I know a lot of you are like, but Dan, don't you like to go and measure out the ingredients and all that? No, I don't. When I'm home, I just want to relax and make it easy. And sometimes I just don't, I don't want to order food and I want to have fresh food that I make myself. And HelloFresh fills that void. Go to HelloFresh.com slash GreenEggs60 and use code GreenEggs60 for 60% off. That's more than half off. I know numbers. 60% off plus free shipping. HelloFresh.com slash GreenEggs60. I promise you're going to love it, okay? HelloFresh is America's number one meal kit. If you haven't heard the show before, Dan, we go through a series of questions that we ask all of our guests. Yes. And I would love to go through those questions with you now. Oh, I cannot wait to do this. Let's do it. These, these were wonderful questions. Dan, what's your earliest food memory? Okay, so I have a couple of answers for everything. And I know earliest should be just one thing. But the one earliest food memory, and I write about this in the book, is... By the way, that's my pet peeve when people, like authors, are on podcasts and they're like, I write about this in the book. Undercooked. How I let food become my life navigator and how maybe that's a dumb way to live. On sale now. My earliest food memory was a falafel sandwich in Israel. I went with my family. I don't remember the details very well. I know that it was outside or we were eating it outside and it was nighttime. And I remember a bright light from like one of those, like, you know, those like clip on lights that has like that you put in like an iguana. Yes. Yes. That's what those falafel stands in Israel have. Yeah, sure. I know that I can picture that. Yeah. I just had never had anything like it before. And it was just, you know, a falafel sandwich. If you think about a falafel sandwich for someone who's never had one, there's, more textures and flavors in that sandwich than in like anything. There's hot, there's cold, there is yeasty, there's, uh, you know, there's savory, there's nutty, there's amba, there's like weird pickly. I mean, it is a flavor explosion. So I remember that really well. And so much so that I remember I was like asking my mom for pictures from that trip and, and maybe I could find a picture with a falafel or something. And she sent me this picture of me holding a fucking like M16 rifle. And I had no recollection of that. And I, I was like, how funny is it for a kid to have no recollection of holding a fucking M16? But I remember this falafel sandwich very well. And then you become falafel Phil, which you write about in the book. So there's a that's full full circle there. Earliest food memory, which is not like from faraway lands, is my mom used to make this sort of bootleg chocolate mousse where she would take, she'd call it chocolate mousse, okay? But I feel like it's it's much more dangerous and sinister than that. She would take a cup, put a raw egg yolk in it, a big pat of butter and a like tablespoon of like chocolate powder, like a, like a hot chocolate powder type thing and would mix that together. Oh my and would God. call it chocolate mousse. <laughs> Was it? Was it good? I mean, if you remember it, it must be delicious. Yeah. It was delicious. It was like our after school thing. Uh, it was really delicious. But like you look back at it now, it's like if someone did that to their kid, like they'd call child protective services on them. Like <laughs> for sure. Them e. coli, <laughs> um, salmonella. But it was really, really delicious and uh, a very, very early memory. Then what would your death row meal be? Okay. Very curious about this. I feel death like you've about this so much. I can't death row meal. I actually spent all day today like thinking about it. Uh, and here's how it starts. Ready? First off is an amuse-bouche. The amuse-bouche is one McDonald's chicken nugget with, with the McDonald's barbecue sauce. Wow. 
Okay. Uh, after that, we do uh, crispy sweetbreads. Um, I love sweetbreads so much, uh, which is uh, thymus gland, which sounds gross, wow. but it's so delicious. It's creamy, crispy sweetbreads. It's kosher, uh, right? Uh, it is kosher. It's 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 a beef uh, thymus gland. Wow. Next up is one stick of chicken tail yakitori. <sighs> chicken tail yakitori is the best fucking bite of food ever. Alongside one stick of feng mao uh, lamb barbecue, which to me is like the best bite of food in Los Angeles. Okay. Um, in fact, in my fridge, I have a, uh, I have a big tin of the, uh, the seasoning that they have there. Cause I showed them that I posted about them on Instagram and they gave it to me. Um, <laughs> okay. Next uh-huh. main course, duck confit on top of frise with Balthazar French fries and mayonnaise. Wow. Nothing better. Who, Nothing. Is this better. something that you make or is this a. No, I okay. would want a Balthazar makes actually a very, very good duck confit. So a duck confit, Balthazar mm-hmm. French fries, mayonnaise. Uh, next, I want crab cocktail, which I think is the unsung hero uh, of the cocktail. Way better than a uh, shrimp cocktail. Mm. A nice blue crab cocktail. After that, I would like a cheese course, which takes us into dessert. For dessert, I want a basic B tiramisu love tiramisu like a, just a old school italian restaurant old you know, school tablecloths right 90s tiramisu yeah. there's right? nothing better and anyone tries to perfect on it nah. no right oh, wow it's just the best after that i would like a <laughs> i'd like a glass of dessert wine a chateau you can so turn to finish it <laughs> off on the way out you know some fancy restaurants they'll give you like the little uh on the way out, you get a little chocolate. There mm-hmm. is a chocolatier in Switzerland called Sprungli, and they have something called a Luxembourgli, which is like a little um, uh, macaron type thing, but it's not. But it does have this, like the top of macaron, a bottom of macaron, and in the middle, and these are tiny, they're bite-sized, and in the middle is like this soft, velvety chocolate that just melts in your mouth but stays solid at room temperature and uh after that you can shoot me up with all the propofil you want or however they kill people (laughs) (laughs) i was imagining you going by firing squad but that's an incredibly detailed answer you raised the bar for the green eggs and dan death row meal question holy crap i created the bar i created the bar let's go best high-end meal you've ever had yeah so um, you'll see that I write in my questions to people, best high-end meal or worst high-end meal, right? Oh, okay. Yep. And uh, and most people don't say the worst. I'm going to give a best and worst. Uh, the best high-end meal I ever had was at Blue Hill Stone Barns in upstate New York. I went with a friend of mine that they were trying to court to become their wine director. And they pulled out all the stops. It's this special restaurant that's on a farm in upstate New York. And it's just like, you know, they walk you by the chickens and the cows and the pigs. And and then they bring the food out and they tell you a little story. And it's so pretentious, but I fucking loved every second of it. It was so magical. It was a time and a place thing. I'm sure if I went there now, I'd be like, oh, this is bullshit. I just want like casual fine dining. But it was a magical upscale meal. My worst one would be Muguritz, which is a three-star Michelin place in Spain that I went with my uh, ex-fiance. And we we had a very contentious relationship. We would fight a lot. And yeah. literally, before the first course even dropped, we got into a fight. And 
we would fight and just not be able to get out of it. So imagine just like sitting there for three and a half hours. Oh my God. Having like 20 courses of food and just being livid the whole time. Yeah. Ah, that was definitely the worst. And the, the waiter comes by and asks if everything is going well and you're enjoying everything and you have to like stop fighting and, you know, try to smile and be like, oh yeah, everything's, everything's great. And yeah. then you turn back. Oh! <laughs> Brutal. Brutal. All right. Best low-end meal you've ever had? McDonald's french fries. Nothing is better in the world, mm-hmm. flavor-wise, than a McDonald's french fry. It is engineered by scientists to be the most yeah. pleasurable food. And I challenge anyone to put any bite of food up against a freshly cooked bag of McDonald's french fries. Like right out. Hot. Just as good as it gets. Is that also your favorite drunk food, maybe? It is not, actually. Um, oh. My favorite drunk food, it's funny, my favorite drunk food used to be um, you know, the Taco Bell. Everyone, uh, Taco Bell is the most requested uh, favorite drunk food on the podcast. And I used to really love the Taco Bell. I always forget the name of it, but it's the one that has the soft shell on the outside and then the hard shell on the inside. Um, Man, oh, I used right. to love I remember those. that. Yeah. Yeah, I used to love those, but I got hammered like a couple of weeks ago and went to Taco Bell and had it and it just it didn't hit the mark <laughs> as good as it used to. So, I am actually going to go with the Mamoon's shawarma sandwich. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. The Mamoon's West shawarma Village, sandwich, NYU staple. And the reason why I think it's the best drunk food is because it's so delicious when you have it drunk and so off when you have it sober. When you have it sober, <laughs> the, the seasoning is just way too seasoned. It just feels like, ugh, I don't know, this is too much to, to handle. But it's the perfect amount when your senses are dulled and you're drunk. And mm-hmm. it just wakes them up. Uh, I, I just love it more than anything. If you've had that the night before, do you mm. need... Are you, are you good the next day? Like, are you... Does does it does it prevent the hangover? Um, because it's I like meat and, and and bread and all that. I don't know if I buy that when people are like, "Yeah, oh, really? you know, you you it's sucking up all the alcohol." Right, I don't right, know right. That that's yeah. how science works. Really? I don't know. I mean, I imagine you're digesting everything. I don't know. I I would love a MythBusters on that, but I like any excuse to have junk food or or like you know unhealthy food. So I am going to. I think you're transitioning into uh favorite hangover cure is a love hate one. And you and I actually did it the other day, which was courage bagels, which is a oh, bagel man. shop in LA that has become my favorite bagel in America. And I love it so much. And it's so satisfying to have this bagel, but the crappy thing about it is they don't deliver and there's always a line. Yeah. So now you're hungover and you have to drag yourself out, drive to this place, wait in a line. Yeah. And I just it's don't a- know that it's worth that over just like postmating a, you know, a breakfast burrito. Right. If you're hungover, it can't be the first meal of the day. You can't wait out there in the line and then fight somebody for a plastic chair to sit outside. You got to eat something first. It's a good like second meal of the hangover day. So your, but your, your hangover cure would be that bagel with like locks i think that bagel with the with the the way that they have it there with the uh salmon eggs which i know sounds gross now that i think about it yeah maybe i take this back i'm like do i really want like fish a bowl of ramen i'm gonna go bowl of ramen oh, okay go a nice warm bowl of ramen yeah i'm done with that and that also hydrates you yes that hydrates you it gives you salt it's uh it's good i am so curious 
What are you going to say for this? Mm. Favorite celebrity food personality. You know all these people or want to know all these people, like to talk about them. Anthony Bourdain is mentioned in every other conversation you have. It's a little exhausting. I mean, right. I think this question should be like favorite celebrity food personality besides Anthony Bourdain, because that's everyone's. And we all have a very special place in our heart for Anthony Bourdain. So let's put that to the side. The first person that got me into food TV that I was obsessed with, that I couldn't wait to watch when I'd come home from school every day was The Frugal Gourmet. Do you remember this show? Nope. The Frugal Gourmet was on PBS and it was like this old <laughs> dude who would just go and just try to I was to watching cartoons things. after school. <laughs> I was watching Dennis the Menace. I was watching The Frug. <laughs> And he was just such a nice man, almost like a Mr. Rogersy vibe. And he'd go and get these foods and make a cheap meal out of it. And I just loved everything about him. I love Jacques Pepin so much. He, I love his accent. I love the way he teaches. I like his cookbooks a lot. So yeah, some like I'd say some combination of the frugal gourmet and uh, Jacques Pepin uh, are my are my favorites. I love that. Yeah. Uh, those are uh, different different nominations for the greatest food personality than I'm used to hearing on the show. Great. Yeah. Desert Desert Island food. Is this also okay. a massively long list or do you have, do you know, is this like simple? I got one thing, man. One thing I will never get tired of ever, bread with ricotta and honey. Wow. That I is can eat great that answer. all the time oh. and never get tired of it. Yeah. It's good any time of day. It's the best. Salty and sweet, satiates you. Good answer. What food can't you stand eating? Okay. There's a couple foods I can't stand eating. I have a tough time with pickled herring Mm. because of the sweetness. There's something about sweet and fish is weird to me. Mm -hmm. Um, I I returned a dish because it was too gross for me recently, which is crazy to say this late in life. But it was at a Thai restaurant called Love to Eat Thai, and it was some sort of of like shrimp paste that they made in-house and they like they give all the warnings for the white people they're like do not order this <laughs> you're not gonna like it um and i was like bring it on and it just tasted like i mean it it literally tasted like someone forgot they threw shrimp out into the garbage five days later and took it out and then served it on cold noodles and it was like just had this totally like fish ferment spoiledy flavor to it that I just couldn't get down with. I had something in Japan that was disgusting once that was that it just killed me. It was fish that was braised in milk. Ugh. It was a milk braised fish, which I couldn't stand. I also had eel liver in Japan. That wow. was a little much for me. It was like you love eel though. I love eel and I love liver, but eel liver. <laughs> 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 there are these really cool restaurants. Actually, it was while I was there with you, but there are these ones I went during the day. There's really cool restaurants that are just unagi restaurants in Tokyo right, that are right. just an eel restaurant. Yeah, devoted I, to I, didn't, eel. I wasn't interested. That's why you, you went alone. Yeah. <laughs> and it's really cool because they have the the eel that they give you with um, you know, on the on the rice, uh, with the sauce, and it's really delicious and fresh. And then they take the eel bones and they f- deep fry them and they taste really cool as like a snack. And then they give a skewer of eel liver and Man, it tasted like a nine volt battery that was dipped in like fish oil. It was so funky, man. I couldn't stand it. Yeah, I think those are pretty good. Can't stand foods. I also can't stand diet soda. I really can't stand diet soda. Oh, I don't like that either. Yeah. Oof, like diet coke. It tastes like chemicals. That fake sugar flavor 
right. fucking floors me. I hate it with such a passion. You know, the, the last question here, I, <laughs> the question is, what is your restaurant pet peeve? But do you have, I've heard about many of them in person. I've heard about many of yours on the show. Is there a single current pet peeve of yours that tops the list? I know you don't like when the volume's too loud on the mm-hmm. on the stereo, right? There's a new one that I have okay. that is probably going to be the death of me because everyone does it. And they do it, which is normal. I just think it hasn't been... No one's checked them yet enough. But my pet peeve is when a server reads off a special and then doesn't tell you how much it costs. I hate it. Yeah. There's something so classist about it. There's something so like... Well, we're just assuming right. you're going to be rich. like, And then it's like you're playing right. Russian roulette with what the price of the fucking sea bass is going to be. And can I tell you something? Every restaurant does that. And it didn't become a pet peeve until I went to one restaurant that didn't do it. And it wasn't just any restaurant. It was Balthazar in New York City, which is like this temple of fine dining-y. It's like what every restaurant strives to be. And they would read off the specials and tell you the price. And I was like, why doesn't every place do that? Will you ask for the price if they don't, even if you're not interested in the, I know you, I know you would, you don't even want what they're pushing, but you want to make a point and you're like, how much is that sea bass? You do it, don't you? How much is the diet soda special? (laughs) Just just out of curiosity. No, if I'm not interested, I won't. Uh, I will tell you, it brings up a really funny memory, which is, you know, my parents were kosher. It was always funny when like, the server would come and read the specials and they would like be like, okay. And we also have a pork loin and the pork loin has, and you know, right away that my parents are hating it. And then yeah. it's like, it, it seems like it goes on for like three hours. Their, right. their, their explanation of the pork loin. <laughs> and my parents <laughs> want to like blip the table. <laughs> my parents who are like semi Ashkenazi reconstructionist Jew kosher, meaning they don't just don't have like pork or cheeseburgers. Uh, they, they will stop the waiter if it is a pork they will. entree. No, no, no. We don't. We don't eat pork. We don't eat pork. So that's interesting that your parents let it go. They keep it cool. <laughs> they keep it cool. They keep it cool. I mean, my parent, my dad definitely once had a mac and cheese, and it had bacon bits in it, and he ate it and brought the waiter over and said, "What is that?" And he was like, "It's bacon bits." Pointing to the bacon bits. And my dad spat it out, got oh up, God. like ran to the to the bathroom <laughs> as if he was just like Vladimir Putin just like poisoned him or something. Like he <laughs> he needed out, like so dramatic. <laughs> I'd like to just get into a couple more pet peeves just for fun. I bet. Here we go. And I've and I've talked about a bunch of them again, but I feel like I'm okay revisiting. Servers who don't know mm-hmm. when to jump into the conversation. You mean you mean when they come over and you're in the middle of a thing and they're like, how's everything going? Yes. And it's always the most dramatic part of the story. It's like, and then For as sure. we we're about to break out of the prison, hey, uh, you guys want to hear about <laughs> specials? It's like, right. So that I hate so much. You know what is a new one I hate? I hate when you walk into an, an empty restaurant. Hey, uh, yeah, can we get a table? Sure. Do you have a reservation? Go fuck yourself. <laughs> 
<laughs> go and fuck yourself. I've thought about this. I think they just want to be able to click it off on the computer to say that that reservation is here. Be a little self-aware. Say, I know it's ridiculous to ask. Um, it's just for the computer. <laughs> I understand that we are completely empty and it's and we should be grateful that you're actually here. However, do you have a reservation? <laughs> I hate when I go to a bar and, uh-huh. you know, the, the bartender's a little busy, probably doing a little bit of this and that. Maybe even not that busy. And I'll be like, can I get a martini please and they just keep going about as if like nothing's happening and then like a minute later they walk by i'm like i'm sorry can i get a martini i heard you i heard you the first time oh i will fucking firebomb that restaurant i will follow that person home and firebomb the whole apartment complex collateral damage I do not care. So you, you just want an acknowledgement. You understand they're busy, but just an acknowledgement got you. Be right with you. Just acknowledgement. Give me a, give me yes. a second, bud. I, I got you. Cool. Great. Right. We're done. You ever think about throwing down a 20 on the bar and just as soon as you walk in, just to kind of command that attention? You know what? No, I want them to be nice regardless of the of the they should be nice regardless of the money that they're that they're getting. Oh, you know what kills me that this is you and I are going to fucking fight on this one. The yeah. old 3% for the health insurance of the people <laughs> in the back of the house. You hired the illegal alien, not me. You hired the illegal. You deal with it. You pay for the healthcare. Is this a, a California thing? Oh, have you? You guys don't have this? I, I don't think. I don't really. Oh honestly, don't really look at the check. Oh yeah, twenty oh, percent gratuity is included. Oh, and then three percent right. optional for the kitchen in the health. But of they the should pay for the health yes. insurance. Why don't you give them a higher salary? Right, and then include that in the cost of the meal. Add fifty cents to every single dish, but now you're putting it on fucking me. Yeah, fuck right. you. And then if you don't. <laughs> <laughs> like the the, the dishwasher is gonna die now if I don't put like what is, you what feel is guilty. happening? It's like if you don't round up to the nearest <laughs> dollar at the CVS checkout, you feel guilty that you're not curing cancer. Another pet peeve. I understand. Another pet oh, peeve. Boy. Anywhere that I go, that I have to wait in line to put my order in, and then I have to go back to the counter to get my order. So there's no server. I'm doing all the work. Fuck you asking for a twenty percent tip on that. When you turn the little iPad to me and it says options 17%, 20%, or 23%. For what? I did the busing. I did the serving. I did the ordering. <laughs> I brought the order to the kitchen. What? What's the 20% for? What do you do? Curious. I give 20%. <laughs> Crazy dude. I hate it, but I do it. <laughs> you give it 20% and then you open up the little notes uh, file on your phone that says restaurant pet, pet peeves to talk about on green eggs and dad. And you're like 15%, 20%. <sighs> I hate it. That is a whole new realm of the, the service industry that we are very much still like in the wild west figuring it out. Oh. I I don't know what to do. Like food is a hell of a lot more expensive than it was a couple of years ago in general. Yeah. And then they're turning, you know, turn the iPad around. And is it, is it is 25% is an option for a black cup of coffee? Right. And do I do that? And, and, and he was nice to me, like relatively, he said, hi, how are you? So then I just do, give the 25%. But I mean, should I do that? Is he getting a living wage without it? I don't know. I don't know what. <laughs> The societal standards are, but I, I feel either like fucking taken or guilty, no right. matter what decision I make. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, the, th- the thing is, you press that button and then they turn the iPad over 
And they look, they look at exactly yeah, how much you just tipped. Then they can do stuff to whatever you ordered <laughs> before they give it to you. Another restaurant, Pepe. I hate it when I go out to eat with people who get really, really squeamish when I'm either returning a dish or asking a server um, a question about how something yeah. tastes or whatever. Like those people like that just like it bothers me so much. It's like, why are you so nervous? Like every no one's there's this old wives tale that someone's going to spit in your meal. No one's spitting in anything. Why does everyone care about servers feelings? <laughs> More than literally anyone's feelings in the, like, I'll do it too. Like, I'll be with my mother, who I love more than anyone in my life, and she'll, like, embarrass me in front of the server. I'm like, mom, mom, shut up. Shut up, mom. Shut up. It's like, why do servers have this place in life where they're just like these like these deities, we can never annoy the <laughs> server. Something really bad's gonna happen. You've always had issues with s- servers not being recognized as just workers there to do a job that you're paying them for, and that they you, we should not hold them up to any other different standards. This has been a thing you've had for years. You've been talking yes. about. Yes, and again, it comes from a place of I've said this before. When I have an awful, awful day and I have to go on stage, I have to put on a face. I have to put on a face and do my job. Like, right. Cause th- right. When, that bothers me when people are like, oh, he's maybe he's having a bad day. Yeah, but he's at work now. Like, that's that's what we do. We go to work. We all do this, but somehow servers are allowed to bring all of the baggage of their day and throw it on us. And then we have to give them 20% for that honor. Well, the, the counter to that will always be somebody at your table will probably say, well, I, you know, I was a server. I was a server. Yeah. Well, you should have fucking hid your emotions better too. <laughs> One more pet peeve, please. When people refer to the chef, when the people working at the restaurant refer to the chef as chef. Yeah. Fuck your weird cult leader <laughs> bullshit you have going on. Oh, when chef came up with th- this dish, chef was at his mother's. Fuck <laughs> chef. But like, I don't know him. The way it's said is as if it's, oh, Joe. Joe recommends us. You know Joe. We're we're all friends with Joe. I don't know who Chef is. But it's it, it feels weirder than Joe. It feels like it's a it's it's a cult leader thing. And, oh, the chef thinks that the, the, the chef recommends you do like, but something about chef recommends. Just taking the the out of it. Like suddenly I feel like I'm at an ashram on, you know, like David Koresh is my leader and he's and he's gonna light the place on fire if I don't call him chef. I don't know. <laughs> That's uh, you might have to do a little uh, factoid about David Crash in the show <laughs> for those who, those who don't remember the cult, the most famous cult leader from the night, <laughs> the Branch Davidian. Dan, thank you so much for coming on my show. Yes, is this when we announce that I'm the new host of Green Eggs and Dan? Listen, uh, we'll let the audience decide. You can do a GoFundMe if you need it. You should know that. The host of this show is not the host. The host of this show is host and host recommends <laughs> right. host recommends that you stick to your own podcast. No, I thought you did great. And thank you for doing this. Uh, you are my partner in The Verge. I love you so much. And there's no one I enjoy talking to uh, in general more than you. So for you to give me all this time on the weekend to talk about the book is an honor. Thank you very much. Dan, the honor is all mine to have this chance to talk to you about the book. The book again is Undercooked. How I Let Food Become My Life Navigator and How Maybe That's a Dumb Way to Live. It's such a funny and fun read. I'm in awe of how you just turned this 
series of life experiences into this cohesive, compelling, sometimes emotional story. Uh, you educate the reader on food and explore the depths of your soul. I'm proud and honored to have you as a friend. I love you. Good luck with the book. I hope it sells like fucking hotcakes. Thank you, buddy. Mazel tov. I appreciate it. Thank you. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.